My money. Money. I get money from you. Money in the bank. Young money. Money, 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 money. It's a rich man's world. I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. World-renowned financial advisor and best-selling author Barry James Dyke will arm you with the truth. This is The Economic Warrior. Please note, the opinions expressed on this show are of the individuals who speak them, and not necessarily of Portsmouth Community Radio, its members, or board of trustees. And good afternoon, Portsmouth, New Hampshire, and for you, the folks uh, listening throughout country and overseas, you're listening to Portsmouth Community Radio, WSCA FM 106.1 on your dial in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, and my name is Barry James Dyke, and you're listening to the Economic Warrior Show today. We have a great show for you folks. Very, very, very pleased. We're going to have Gretchen Morgenson on. Gretchen is is a truth teller of the first order, probably one of the best financial journalists in the United States, and she's fearless, and I love her. Well, thanks for having you on today, and I'm a big fan of yours. Uh, We've talked to a number of years, and uh, we'll have to meet one of these days. Well, thank you for that. You know, I love truth tellers. You're one of the best, and sometimes I wonder how they let you tell the truth. First of all, you wrote an article last Sunday, Impunity That Main Street Didn't Forget. Right. Could you tell our audience why Trump got elected? There really is no prosecution in white-collar crime, is there? Well, this was just a hypothesis of mine, Barry. It's not really—I haven't done any scientific polling. I haven't even done any unscientific polling. (laughs) But what I—I can't help but think that one of the reasons why— there's still so much palpable anger in this country, and that kind of anger was funneled to Trump and he tapped into it, is that there really, to this day, eight years later, has been no accountability for the people who brought the economy to its knees in this country. And I'm talking, of course, about the mortgage crisis of 2008. Yes. Now, we really did not have any high-level executives go to jail out of the crisis. And this has been the question that I receive most from my readers. Why did this not happen? Why was this such a, a situation where accountability is completely AWOL? And my answer is, I wish I knew. I wish I could produce this smoking gun email that tells the story, but it's really very hard to understand why. We've all seen the damage that 2008 did to the entire economy, the world economy, really, and to individuals. And to believe that there really wasn't any criminal behavior or activity uh, in that mess is really just, I think, too much of a reach. So I believe that there's a, a sense of anger about no accountability being brought to bear in the aftermath of 2008. By comparison, Barry, as I said in my article, more than 800 people went to jail in the SNL crisis, which took place in the late 80s, early 90s. And so you have that comparison for a crisis that was much, much smaller and uh, impacted far fewer people and over 800 people went to jail. So I'm just saying this is, I believe, an element of what was at work during this election. Yeah. 
when you look at someone like uh, Jimmy Kane, the guy who used to run Bear Stearns, Bear Stearns was uh, essentially they they imploded, and Kane, I, I think he's worth still worth three four hundred million. Uh, Dick Fole, who ran um, Lehman Brothers, is still worth you know hundred couple hundred million. Lehman Brothers was was like the Walmart of subprime mortgages. And they were using other people. Well, they were all very involved. All of them were very involved. Merrill Lynch, um, as you say, Bear Stearns, Lehman Brothers, Goldman, they were all involved. Yeah, Gretchen, too. They were doing, they always do it with other people's money. And this is, remember the old Justice Brandeis? And he's kind of like one of my heroes. He wrote the book, Other People's Money. They're always, uh-huh. they're always doing it with other people's money, aren't they? Well, yeah, that's the way our system works. And then, you know, so they are able to enrich themselves with other people's money. And then when things go wrong, because they take too many risks or because they're not careful or they're reckless, then the taxpayer ends up paying the bill. So it's really so wrong in so many ways. You know who the major shareholders are of these companies like Lehman Brothers? I I, I think I've, you have copies of my second book, The Highway to Surf. Number. Yes. The largest shareholders are, you know, essentially mutual fund holders, okay, which are the institutional holders. So even when Lehman Brothers went down, uh, the biggest shareholders that were, uh, I can't remember if they were Alliance Bernstein, Vanguard, uh, Fidelity, and a bunch of other folks, okay, these folks pocket all their, you know, the insiders pocket all their money. The institutions really don't get hurt because they're just essentially, you know, they're just asset managers. Um, so it's always other people's money, isn't it? Yeah, and you know, you bring up an interesting point, Barry, which is that the the failure of the large institutions like Vanguard, like Fidelity, to really act in the interests of their own investors. That's a failure that has really helped to prolong and keep on the problem. Things like executive compensation that's really out of sight. Um, You know, these, these institutions don't vote against pay packages at many, many of these companies. And so they're, they become then a part of the problem. Because you and I don't vote those shares when we own a mutual fund. Vanguard votes the shares, or Fidelity, or Putnam votes the shares. And if they don't vote in a way that can really make something change, you know, if they can't vote to change a bad dynamic, then there's something wrong with the system. And so you see these problems sort of up and down the line, and then that's the reason why nothing ever seems to change. Yeah, didn't you do some research? And I, I've checked this, and it's kind of funny when you wrote that article. I think you did article on the in September about this. It's called "Your Fund Has Your Say, Like It or Not." Facts that came up with some data, I believe, and and I I was kind of funny when you wrote the articles because I had been looking at the same data that these fund companies vote with, you know, one of the only ways you can really control these people, okay, executives, is through compensation. But most of the time they voted with management, didn't they? That's right. That's right. Like 95% of the time <laughs> or more do they vote with management. And things like executive pay, uh, they're just basically rubber stamping what these management teams are doing. And I'm not saying that 
all management teams are wrong, but, you know, you can't believe that 95 or 98 percent of these proposals are or these at or these votes are really done in the in the proper manner. I mean, are we really happy with 98 percent of the way managers are running these companies? It's hard to believe. I think things can be improved and change is necessary. But unfortunately, I can't vote my Vanguard mutual fund shares that way. No, we can't. But I, I'm just trying to bring some sunlight on it. Earlier, we were talking about Valiant. They're, they can't stay out of the news. About a year ago, Gretchen, everyone, all the you know investment banks, they were essentially saying, "This is you got to buy this. This is the next Berkshire Hathaway of stocks, blah, blah, blah. Vanguard and was one of the largest shareholders of this. As you know, uh, Valiant was essentially a, it was a drug marketing company been involved in other scams and scandals uh, amongst them, Philidor. And it's gone from 248 a share or 250 a share down to roughly 18 bucks today. Retail share- shareholders have gotten crushed, but Michael Pearson got 100 million bucks in stock options uh, cashed out this month, the, last summer. That's just one example, Barry, of the kinds of, you know, out of control executive pay going on. And, you know, for for years, he was a Wall Street darling because the <laughs> stock price kept going up. And they're another one of these companies that uh, puts out what I call phony numbers. <clears throat> these are the non-GAAP or, or numbers that are not according to generally accepted accounting principles. So investors just bought into the program and even though Valiant would would back out, you know, costs associated with their business in their earnings results, you know, making the earnings look better than they actually yeah. were, investors didn't seem to care. They just went along with the ride and, you know, until, of course, it went on the downside and then they got creamed. So there are a lot of things that sort of contribute to a passivity among investors that I think really ends up um, harming the capital markets over the long term. Wall Street's story has always been that we're the, we know how to allocate capital better than anybody. As an advisor, Gretchen, I always tell people the best thing to do is invest in yourself and you know stay out of debt, all these kind of corny things. Because the way I look at it, so much of it, it's, it's just um, even with the passive, and I, I like pass, passive investments, it's really no cure, really, to protect your principal. The only ones who seem to be have their principal protected has been the banks. And the executives. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> also, too, which uh, luckily, uh, about a couple of weeks ago, we had uh, Alan Kalinge. I don't know if you know of Alan. He's kind of like, he's the guy who, uh, studentloanjustice.org, and we, we talked oh, about... Oh, good, uh-huh. Oh, yeah, I don't know if you know Alan. He's a wonderful guy. You wrote an article back in June, I remember this, about student loans, how they out- outlive the failed schools. Could you tell our listeners how that scam worked? Well, the unfortunate thing is the Department of Education is deeply conflicted. Okay, so the Department of Education dispenses these loans to colleges and, you know, a lot of them for-profit colleges. And they're supposed to also sort of be a policeman, you know, to make sure that the colleges are really giving the education to the students that the students need and that they're paying for. 
Unfortunately, the Department of Education has fallen down so immensely on its task to police these these um, for-profit colleges. And so you've ended up with a situation where students are carrying, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt in some cases, and they receive no education whatsoever. And when the companies go bankrupt, which, um, you know, a couple of them already have, Corinthian Colleges is an example, when they go bankrupt, then the student has a diploma from a worthless institution. <laughs> and so not only do they have this, you know, thousands of dollars in debt or tens of thousands, they have a worthless diploma. And the worst thing of all, which I know you know, Barry, is that student loan debt is not dischargeable in bankruptcy court. No, it, no so it is. So it is a permanent debt. It is a permanent albatross. And so the degree to which students paid for a worthless education with student loans provided by the government is a huge problem in this country. And it's preventing students from starting families, buying homes, you know, really starting out down their economic road. And it's uh, having an impact, I think, on the overall economy. But the problem really is laid at the door of the Department of Ed because they are not properly policing schools. And when they go bankrupt, then it's the students who are on the hook. Yeah. If the it, students don't pay the loans, then the taxpayers are on the hook. So again, you have a situation where the executives of these companies benefit by receiving you know, millions of dollars in pay and bonuses. And then, then they leave their students with nothing but debt and the taxpayers possibly on the hook. It's just a terrible, terrible situation. My whole thing about private equity is is that the biggest players in these, these for-profit schools have been some of the private equity titans. Laureate Education, which is the world's largest, was that was done by uh, KKR and Citigroup and George Soros. And um, this is where Bill Clinton made up four to five uh, million a year. And then uh, the second largest was Educational Management Corporation. That was an leveraged buyout by Goldman Sachs and Providence Equity in 2006, I guess it was. They dumped that in public markets. They essentially went bankrupt, Gretch, and they and, and KKR took them over in a debt for equity swap. So the largest now is Apollo Global, which was actually taken over by P- Apollo Global Management. Yeah, Apollo runs uh, University of Phoenix, which is the largest. They have the they have the number, a largest number of students. That's for sure. I want to one of the things which I very passionate about is student loan. I call it the student loan academic industrial complex and private equity um, involvement in it. And as I say, Laureate was essentially funded with private equity uh, money, which they get from state pension funds, uh, mostly the seed money, as the limited partner money comes from that. And then a Apollo was Apollo University of Phoenix was taken over by Apollo Global this year, and then Education Management was you know a, a Providence Equity uh, Goldman Sachs deal which went which is now owned by KKR, and then I think Warburg Pincus owns another one of them. I forget what the name is. Did you know that ITT was you know the Blum Capital was a major shareholder in ITT as well? Yes. Yes. So it's well, you know, I think the thing that's central to all of these the data points you're talking about, Barry, is the fact that you know there was a view that this was a very profitable business model, and you know, 
it really is very similar to the predatory lending model yeah. uh, in the mortgage space. You have people who they're preying on kids who are looking to get out of perhaps a bad economic situation. They think education is the answer. These companies know all the buttons to push and to what to say. You too can change your life by becoming educated and becoming a whatever chef or a <laughs> um, some sort of a legal profession. And, you know, what ends up happening is these students take out the loans from the government and they very rarely get a real education. And so they're then they're behind the eight ball. So this was an immensely profitable industry. And it's come down a little bit in that. You've seen some bankruptcies because the government finally, very belatedly, started to crack down. That doesn't mean that these executives haven't already made millions and millions of dollars during the heyday years when the government was looking the other way. Yeah, I figure with the the guy who uh, founded uh, University of Phoenix, I think he's one of the wealthiest men in Arizona. I figure what his name is, him and his Son, I mean, these guys made billions on it, and um, it's it's such a scam. And it, but it's always about the debt, isn't it, Gretch? I mean, because it's always about use and abuse of debt. Yes, Did, because you, you know, debt is it's something that can work, of course, for you if you manage it properly. But when things go wrong, you know, having debt is just ends up being a killer. It's like carrying a fat man up Mount Everest. Uh, yeah. What I figured out is that maybe the private equity guys have figured it out is that they use really use the debt flow from the taxpayer to really build their whole business model. Does that seem correct? Yes, I would agree. I wanted to get back to, you wrote an article, I think it was maybe back October, Gretchen, it was Wells uh, Fargo essentially gets spanked while others skate. And I wanted to uh, bring this up because Wells Fargo, I don't know, do you know how much did Stump end up giving up in um, Clawback, do you know? Um, you know, I don't know the number off the top of my head. He was going to give up, I think, all of the money that he had been promised in the most recent year. You know, it was double-digit millions, but, you know, it wasn't actual money, Barry. What it was was equity that had been promised to him. Yeah. It's not like it was nothing, but it wasn't money that he actually had received and then he had to give back. What he basically was giving back was promised equity that he had been you know, told he would receive. So it's not precisely a clawback, but I mean, it's something. He had to give back something that he was counting on getting or that he thought he would get, but it's not the same as actually paying back money that you have received, paid taxes on, et cetera. I think he walked out the door with something like 146 million, 140 million. Didn't go home with an empty pail. And uh, Carrie Tolstead, no. who I, I guess they they called her the watchmaker. I think did I get that from you? Maybe they call her the. Uh, no, I don't know about that. They call her nickname was the watchmaker, and she was the the gal who oversaw all this uh, identity theft. It was two million. Now it's up to 2.1 million cases of uh, identity yes. theft. Yeah. yeah. And they would like go like fifty three hundred people, something like that. Yeah, and did you see that there was a statistic that came out today? I saw in a story, maybe a Bloomberg story, about Wells Fargo's uh, new account openings are down like forty four percent or something like that in the most recent period. So you know they're still feeling the um, the res the ramifications of these activities, but you know that 
that woman, uh, I mean, nobody's seen her, nobody's heard from her. I mean, she's kind of the mystery woman. I guess they're clawing back some of the money that she was supposed to have made. Boy, talk about a real big mess up. And you finally saw Warren Buffett come out and say that Stump made a mistake. Well, is that (laughs) one of the bigger understatements of the year? Jeez. Yeah, because he's the, he's one of the biggest shareholders. Thanks for weighing in, Warren. You know, <laughs> I think she got like 120 million, but they fired 5,300 people. Wells Fargo got 22 percent of their revenue from from massive management, in which they do get them. You know, that's the new annuity stream for them, Gretch. So uh, most of these major banks. So yeah, I I just don't get it why people entrust them. On your articles, Wells Fargo has this major you know thing. No one's gone to jail. No one's held accountable. But then you mentioned um, my favorite, one of my favorite uh, private equity firms, Apollo Global Management, run by Leon Black, and you know he donated a fifty million dollar up here in Dartmouth College to create the Black Family Arts Center. So everyone thinks he's cool. Oh, uh huh. Talk about how they kind of skate away on with on their scam on the, that article you wrote. What what I thought was interesting, Barry, hypocrisy is always a good story. Yeah. And so California came out and said, oh, we're going to stop doing business with Wells Fargo because of this scandal. (laughs) Illinois came out and said, we're going to stop doing business with Wells Fargo for a year. We're going to put them in the penalty box because of the scandal. So I thought, well, I'm going to find out if some of these major pension funds are going to do the same thing, put them in the penalty box because of the scandal. Well, absolutely not. They just don't have any interest in holding people accountable. And so I just thought that was an interesting point to make. It really, you know, it sort of seems like, you know, they're doing this grandstanding thing. But when push comes to shove, these states really don't want to hold people accountable. So they'll hold Wells Fargo accountable, but will they hold a private equity firm like Apollo to their to account for the, you know, violations that it was found to have uh, uh, done by the SEC? No, they're not going to stop doing business with them. So I just thought that was an interesting data point to, to point out this kind of hypocrisy of calling out and penalizing one institution, but not doing it, you know, across the board. I've been studying CalPERS, and that's kind of like the, the honeypot or the pot of gold for private equity. I think they have more private equity than any other pension fund. The largest institutional shareholder of Apollo Global is CalPERS. Yeah. So Well, they're apparently a big believer. So you have this, <clears throat> this kind of this, this I call it a predatory uh, business model, and the largest shareholder of, you know, uh, Apollo Global uh, is CalPERS, and uh, they're also a large shareholder of uh, uh, the Carlisle Group. And yep. there was another one when they had Health Elevation Partners they funded, but I think that one has since since it's been terminated and gone bankrupt. Or I don't know if it's been gone bankrupt, but it's being wound down. But also CalPERS was a major uh, owner of uh, UKPA. Did you know that? Yeah. Well, I'm not surprised. California company, right? Yeah. Well, yeah, it's California and Ron Burkle. And that was, you know, that's where Bill Clinton went to work for after he got out of the, yep. the White House. and. You know, he made his fifteen twenty million with you, UKPA, uh, and uh, and uh, when Bill Clinton pitched for UKPA, got to be a great salesman because he convinced them to make a five hundred million dollar investment to liquefy Burkle uh, for equity, which is essentially illiquid, and he also got investment money from him as well. So, do you think many people really understand the ties between private equity and the state pension funds, Gretch? No, I mean I think that. 
The problem, again, Barry, it's similar to the problem we discussed earlier about Vanguard and Fidelity not voting to change the way some, you know, dubious business practices are done. So in in these cases with these pensions, they just don't seem to have the same kind of moral approach or approach that they really only want to do business with upstanding entities that are focused on businesses that do the right thing for their customers, not people who, not institutions that, uh, you know, take advantage of their customers. So again, there's a gatekeeper here, in this case, the pension fund, that is not doing their job of really policing and making sure that they're investing and therefore rewarding the right people. I mean, if you're going to invest with a private equity firm that buys companies and fires people and slashes and burns and takes on debt, and that's a business approach that may be profitable, but is it the right thing to do? I, I would agree with you. I mean, uh, you know, we're only here for a short time in this life, and I think you really you want to, as my father would say, you want to leave the world a better place. But Paulo Global, you know, have you been following the Caesars bankruptcy case? I mean, that was a yes. You know, it was a twenty-six billion dollar LBO, uh, the, uh, the largest casino company in the world. Or it's been a nightmare. And Apollo engineered that. I think they made six, seven hundred million. Bloomberg did an article on it. They made six, seven hundred million fees. They've been in bankruptcy. We know who the largest investors uh, Harris now it's known Caesar Entertainment deal was Gretch. No, it was Calsters. <laughs> oh yeah, okay, yeah. I'm not. Uh, yeah, I'm not surprised. The California Teachers uh, Pension Fund. Yeah, the other large casino chain that went bankrupt was a major one called Stations Casino, and that was done by uh, Tom Barax, Colony Capital. Remember that one? And, oh sure. Yeah, and that one went bankrupt too. After they did a dividend recap, Gretch, I think for like five, six hundred million. <laughs> but the Texas Teachers Retirement Plan had like a hundred, they lost a hundred million dollars on that casino deal. So it's just other people's money, Gretch, and the tax code. Uh, we could talk more, and I'm, I'm so grateful for what you're doing there. And I'm surprised they let you write what you, they do, Gretchen, uh, at the Times, you know? Well, nobody's ever tried to stop me yet, so that's the truth, Barry. And boy, if they did, I'd probably have to find a new place. We need people like you, and you're one of my heroes. Well, and, thank you. Gosh. Yeah, yeah, because it's good, Gretchen, because, you know, uh, I know I've presented some of this research to other people in the media, and, I mean, I'm, I'm, a, I'm as welcome as a skunk at a summer picnic. Well, I'm as well, and uh, I like it that way. I don't really want to be invited to parties that are thrown by these people. <laughs> Neither do I, because, I mean, I sleep at night, you know, and I can tell you firsthand, I've presented some of this research. I've been interviewed by Bloomberg and people like that at length on this stuff, but it never sees the light of day. So uh, I'm so grateful for, for you and what you do. Uh, I want to really just encourage you to keep on going. And there's a bunch of other things we could we could talk but about, but... Uh, we're coming to the end of our show, and you're listening to WSCA FM 106.1 in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. My name is Barry James Dyke. You're listening to the Economic Warrior Show. And today we've been most uh, grateful to have Gretchen Morganson, a senior business writer at the New York Times and uh, one of my favorite writers on the show today. And Gretchen, we'll have to have you back someday, okay? Sure, Barry. Anytime. Have a great weekend and a great Thanksgiving. God bless. Take care. Thank you. 
This has been The Economic Warrior with your host, Barry James Dyke. Broadcast live at WSCA Portsmouth Community Radio. Engineered by Phil Kleiger. If you have any questions about today's show or need an ally in conquering the battleground of finance, contact the warrior himself at barryjamesdyke.com. Who are the warriors?